Lord, the truth of that song that Katie and Tom just led us in is so powerful. Um, we are children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, and yet, Lord, just in this fallen nature, we, we go looking for love in all the wrong places. Uh, as John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. Um, we're constantly straying from, from who we are already in Christ. Um, and so we need to be reminded of the gospel, reminded of the gospel. Um, the gospel isn't just the front door into the Christian life. It is the structure of the Christian life. Um, so I pray for anyone here who uh, never has truly trusted Christ, that, that, man, it would be so awesome, Lord, to see them born again. Um, and for those of us um, who have, but, but again, the, the, the gospel is minimized in our heart. Would you just explode the message of grace in a fresh way, Father? I pray you do that in my heart as I preach it. Uh, I pray you do it in the hearts of people as they listen, Lord. Um, yeah, that you would not just speak to our minds, but that you would raise our affections for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 997 dollars that's how much the average american will spend this christmas season on gifts and decorations and food and other holiday items 997 bucks and this was kind of surprising according to the study i read that actually varies uh very minimally from uh economic class to economic class almost across the board 997 dollars 21% of Americans are going to get into debt because of holiday spending. And on top of that, some 800, $859 billion will be spent in the American economy during Christmas, more than the gross national product of not a few countries. It seems maybe... Um, the focus is not so much on the celebration of the birth of the Savior, but crass commercialization on steroids and consumerism. Now, this is not a diatribe against giving gifts, okay? Giving gifts would be, are quite nice. If anybody has season tickets for the Red Wings, I would not say, oh, that's so decadent. I would receive it gladly, okay? Um, so giving gifts isn't bad. Um, but I'm just trying to say, that's quite shocking, isn't it? How much is spent on giving gifts? But as lavish and as excessive as that is, and it is, do you know that God is a much more lavish and excessive gift giver than all of that? And that's what this series is all about. We're looking at the God who gives. Last week, we went to probably the most famous, famous verse, verse in the Bible, John 3.16, it's been called the Bible in miniature, and we saw how God has given the gift of himself. God gave his son, the second person of the Trinity. Today, we're going to look at Romans 6.23, which was read earlier. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And as I said by way of introduction last week, we can become so ho-hum about these matters, right? So, we, so th this verse gets us away from ho-humness because it, it reminds us of what we really deserve, our wages, right? 
And then it comes and says, oh, but oh no, I've got free grace for you. And I think that's why Romans 6.23 is just such a powerful verse. It's, it's, it shows how incredibly beautiful Christianity really is, family. Because it is radically different than every other religion. Most every religion says God is perfect. They have their words to describe that. As Christians, we call him holy because he is the true and living God. But most religions say God is not, God is perfect. They have different words to describe it, but they say he's perfect. And then they'll say that man is not perfect, and they have different words to describe that. And so what religions do then to close the gap between God being perfect and us not being perfect is they, in effect, give you a to-do list. And when they're candid, they say, we don't really know exactly how good you got to keep this list, um, but here's a list anyway, and do the best you can, and maybe it'll all work out in the end. That's, that's basically human religion. Christianity comes along and says, oh, no, 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 no. You, you can't work your way into God's favor, but you can receive it as a free gift. There is two key words in Romans 6.23, the word wages and the word gift. They're entirely different. Wages are based on what you have earned, right? You earn your wages. The gift is not. Wages are based on what you deserve. A gift is not. Wages are based on the principle of remuneration. The gift is simply based on free kindness. Wages, in effect, are based on the law. A gift is based on grace. If you work for an employer and you put your time in, the effort in, you punch the clock and all the rest, and they don't pay you for your hours, you can go to the courts and you have a case, right? You can take them to the law. But, but try filing a lawsuit against somebody because they didn't give you a Christmas gift or because they didn't give you a birthday gift. How would that work? You no, know, the they would say, you have no case. They, you weren't obligated that. And so those are the two key words in Romans 6.23, the word wages and the word gift. So we're just going to take it, to, really two ideas. The big ideas are contained in the words themselves. Point number one, the wages of sin is death. Do y'all remember the first time you ever uh, collected a, a real paycheck, not just like cutting lawns, but you actually got, got a, a printed check? You remember that? For me, it was making $3.50 an hour. I was 15 years old, and I found a summer job painting a local elementary school. I did the work. They paid me the wages, a whopping total, by the way, of $120 before taxes, if I worked 40 hours at $3.50. Those were the wages, and that's what I earned. According to this text, the wages or what we earn for our sin is what? Death. Death. And these are our wages, by the way, we begin to accrue at the point of conception. The psalmist said that we were conceived in sin, not that the act was sinful, but we have a sin nature from jump. 
The psalmist said that we're shapen in iniquity. In other words, we're sinners by nature. Somebody once said, I don't agree with that. My answer, fair enough, stop sinning or stop doing wrong. Their candid answer, well, I can't help it. Right, because we're born sinners. The Bible says in Romans 5.12, wherefore is by one man sin entered the world, and so death spread to all men, for that all have sinned. We not only sinned in Adam, we're sinners by nature, we're also sinners by choice. And when every sin we commit only adds to the wages of death. Sin after sin after sin after sin, that ledger just grows. It's undeniable. But people, and you know this, if you're in the world and you read and you've been in schools and you've come across different worldviews, people try to um, say sin, this concept of sin, is really just an old-fashioned, outdated, religiously imposed concept to kind of keep people under control, right? But in our honest moments, we know that won't do, right? Because as much as we try to suppress guilt, the whisper of conviction always rises to the surface. And you know that. Another tactic is this. It was given by Carl Menninger. He was a world-renowned psychologist, great psychologist, founded the uh, Menninger uh, Psychological Clinic in Topeka, Kansas, which is supposed to be famous. He wrote a book. This is interesting. Remember, he's a psychologist called Whatever Happened to Sin? And in the book, he describes the tactic, the unhappy, unfortunate, unhelpful tactic of downgrading sin to something exclusively that's not my fault. It's only there because of external conditions and external forces and external experiences. That, that it's not me, sin, it's just a response to bad stuff that's been done to me and around me. And he quotes a satirical, if I'm saying that word right, poem by Anna Russell that pokes fun at forms of psychiatry that reject the idea of sin or redefine sin or blame it all on external conditions. Here's how the poem goes. At three, I had a feeling of ambivalence toward my brothers. And so it follows, I naturally poisoned all my lovers. But now I'm happy. I've learned the lesson this has taught, that everything I do is someone else's fault. And that's how fallen humanity seeks to deal with the guilt of sin. This victimization of, of sin mentality, by the way, is having devastating consequences on individuals. Because there are some things that will never change until a person takes ownership of it. However many contributing factors there might be to that issue they're facing. At some level, there is ownership. And not taking that ownership has devastating consequences on individuals, has devastating consequences on families, and on society. Scripture, however, will not let us play the blame game. Scripture doesn't let us do the Adam tactic, the woman that you gave me, she made me do it, right? It doesn't let us do that. 
there are several words in the scriptures for sin. And all of them, at their core essence, get to the fact that sin comes from where? Not external conditions, or we can be sinned against, and that can bring out our sin, right? But at its core, my personal sin is just that. It comes from my person. So the word sin itself occurs 221 times. It has the idea of missing the mark. In other words, you're an archer, you're shooting at a bullseye. At that bullseye is the truth of Romans 3. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I miss that mark not just in my deeds and in my words, but actually my actions and even my motivations. I can have good deeds and good words, but have the wrong motivation. That gets to me. I, not you, I miss the mark for me. Or how about this word? It's the word iniquity has the idea of taking something good and purposefully, intentionally, willfully twisting it. How many times do you and I take good things and we twist it, right? We can do that with a relationship. We can do that with a substance. We can, we can do that a job, any number of things. And then this one's very strong. It's the word disobedience, which captures the idea of shutting my ears, of of not hearing and heeding God's word. God, I'll do that my way, thank you very much. Me making that decision, disobedience. And then maybe one other word, it's the word transgression. Transgression is stepping willfully over a God-given boundary. It's like somebody has a sign in their yard that says, do not step on the grass. You're like, oh, no, I'm going to step on that grass. And we do that when we live life under under, under our own lordship. Now, let's just talk a minute about what sin pays. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul that sins, it shall die. And there's multiple layers of this paycheck or wages of sin called death that's coming to us. First of all, there is physical death. We die because of sin, because we fell in Adam. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed to all men, for that all sin. God had told Adam and Eve, you can eat any tree you want, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of it, it's very strong in the Hebrew, it's a, it's a, it's a double expression, dying you shall die. And the day you eat of it, it's translated you shall die. What happens? They eat, and then later they physically die. Now, I know we use the word, coroners will use the words, uh, they died of a natural death. But, you know, there really is no natural death. Death was not part of the original creation. And therefore, every time you pass a graveyard, a cemetery, it should cry out to you, the fall really happened and sin has really infected us all as evidenced by the fact that we all die. So, wage one of sin is physical death. Now, wage two is spiritual death. We're born quite physically alive, but humanity is spiritually stillborn. In other words, we're born in need of a new birth, right? We're spiritually stillborn. It says in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in trespasses and sins. So wage one, physical death. Wage two, spiritual death. 
And then wage three, eternal death. Do you know Jesus talked about eternal death? Quite a bit, as a matter of fact. Eternal death is separation from God forever. And Jesus described it in at least five ways. First of all, he described this eternal separation from God as darkness, outer darkness, which makes sense because the Scripture says God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And God is not in hell with a presence to bless. His light is not there. It's separation from God. No light because God's not there to bless. And then he describes it as weeping. (laughs) One of the very things that eternity delivers us from, weeping and everything that would cause weeping in our life. Remember that expression, that that great uh, verse in Revelation 21? Death will be no more, no more crying, pain, all that, because the former things have passed away. The very thing heaven delivers us from will be infinitely maxed out, separated from God. There will be weeping. And how about this? Gnashing of teeth. What does that mean? I just think it's an intense um, display of emotion, bitterness, anger. It it says that in the book of Revelation, people won't even repent and give thanks to God. They'll just get stronger in their anger. Or maybe it's the the anguishing, uh, um, the gnashing of teeth of regret, of, of just constantly willfully saying no to the grace of God. And then it says fire and torment. And all I can do is say anguish of unprecedented proportions. And Jesus, fifth of all, said all of that was eternal, everlasting. The wages of sin is death, physical death, spiritual death, eternal death, separation from God. It's not just though future consequences, there is present misery that comes when you live for sin. Sin, of course, tastes good in the moment, doesn't it? I mean, duh, that's, that's sin, so often. But we all know, by painful experience, it's bitter aftertaste when its consequences and effects come home to roost, whether in our lives personally with others relationally, mentally, physically, psychologically, psychologically, all the rest. It affects us. And the word wages, by the way, this is kind of fascinating, isn't actually in this verse the word for a paycheck at the end of a pay period. It's actually the word opsania, which means fish rations, which was what was given to soldiers and prisoners daily. The idea is this, I think, day by day, Sin exacts a toll on a person. And don't we know that from bitter experience when we walk in darkness and not in light? Now, people can foolishly say, I don't believe in all this sin leading to death stuff. It's just natural consequences and all that. Um, But that's almost like saying, I don't believe in gravity. Now, you can pontificate and philosophize about that all you want, about gravity, but you step off a 20-foot ledge and you'll find out, no, gravity's a real thing. 
And you can pontificate and philosophize all you, all you want about, you know, sin and death. But listen, you fall off the precipice of this life into the next, you'll find out that the wages of sin is death. Because it says in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. All I'm trying to say is what these first few words say. The wages of sin is death. Y'all with me? But let's get to this other part. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. God is an opulent, lavish, excessive gift giver. And therefore, he doesn't want you to get what you deserve. He wants you to receive what you don't. But the key to that is actually squaring up with what you do deserve, recognize that, so then you can now receive what you do not deserve. And out of his incredible kindness, out of his incomprehensible generosity, out of his infinite love, God offers humanity the free gift of eternal life. Free gift. Let me just say a couple things about this free gift. Number one, it is rooted in grace. That's why it's translated here, free gift. It's rooted in grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's next week. Jesus came and we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. Listen, if, you, if, you, if you've kind of stagnated in your Christian walk, brother or sister, why don't you just do, why don't you just get your Bible out? In the back they have a little concordance, small one, and run down every reference of grace. And then just marinate on those verses and pray about them and see if your heart doesn't begin to swell afresh over God's grace to you. Powerful concept. It's rooted in grace, and guess what? It's free. Free. Do you not see the word free gift? But the gift of God, or rather, but the free gift of God is eternal life. It is free for us but so costly for God. It goes on to say, in or through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that, doesn't that take us to the, to the heart of the gospel, to the epicenter of our faith? Who Jesus is and, 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 and what he did? We were talking about this in a pre-service prayer meeting as we shared Jesus with those during the Christmas season. I've, I used the word cradle, and then I used the word cross and then crown. Jesus was born ultimately to go to a cross. Jesus, now listen, if you've never heard the gospel, think about this. Jesus lived a sinless life, keeping the law of God perfectly to the nines. And then up on that cross, he was treated as a sinful man as if he had broken the law of God constantly. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. And that was all part of the plan of God, that he would take your wages and pay your sin debt and take on the wages of sin 
man alive did he did. I love the way it says in Hebrews uh, 2, 9. But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, incarnated but not yet glorified. And it goes on to say, he's been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The reason Jesus must be God to pay the penalty is only God can satisfy the righteous wrath of an infinite God. The reason he must be a man is only a man can die for a man. Only a human can die for a human. And he tasted death, my friend, for all who would trust in him. He tasted your death. This is what it looked like. He experienced physical death, the very thing you and I are going to face unless he returns in our lifetime. Gave up his spirit, the scripture says. Gave up the ghost, the old version says. He was laid in a tomb as dead as anybody you've ever seen in your life in a casket. He was dead as dead as dead. He experienced physical death. He experienced spiritual death. On the cross, he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. Cut off from God. I don't understand how one person in the Trinity can be. I don't understand all that. I just know that's what he said. And then, most of all, he experienced eternal death. Eternal death. The dark sky extinguished, as it were, the light of the world as the wrath of God was poured out on the Son of God. And guess what? He was laid in a tomb. But guess what? He rose again on the third day. Forty days later, he ascended to the Father's right hand where he's ruling and reigning crowned, he says, with glory and honor. And he's coming back. And on the basis of what he accomplished in his death, well, perfect life, sacrificial death, irrefutable burial, bodily resurrection, he offers the free gift of eternal life to all who will come to him. He offers it. Listen, if you only are born once physically, you're going to die. You experience two deaths, spiritual death and eternal death. But if you're born again twice, if you're born twice or you're born again, you only die once. You'll die physically but you will go immediately into his presence. Because of what he accomplished, he offers the free gift of eternal life to any and to all who would come. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, if you've never received this gift, why don't you? And if you have received this gift, remember this framework so you can tell your neighbor, your friend, your family member, your coworker about Jesus. You can talk about wages. And you can talk about grace, and you can walk through the gospel right there. Now, you might be asking, well, I've never received this gift. How do I receive this gift? That's a good question. Are you ready for it? You do what? You take it like any other gift. If I want to give you a gift, Josh, and I hold out my hand, what do you got to do to actually make it yours? You have to take it. He won't get it by osmosis. In fact, haven't you ever tried to give a gift to somebody that didn't want it? They said, nope, nope, nope. Right? It's happened a few times. You got to take it. How do you take it? You take it by recognizing what you deserve, 
repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. In the book of Romans, ninth verse of the 10th chapter, it says this, that if you would confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not might be saved, possibly could be saved. We'll see after a period of probation. No, no, baby. We'll be saved. That's what it says. Anywhere, anytime, any place, any person can receive this gift. Now, next week, we're going to see as we close out this series that even the faith to receive this gift is a gift itself. That's next week. I'm just asking you, where's your faith? And I want to tell you, if you just did that, and maybe there was somebody who did, or if you have in the past, here's what's happened to you. Here's what's happened to you. You have received the forgiveness of sin. God casts your sins from you as far as the east is to the west. But it's not just the, the, the removal, I remember this too, of the weight of sin from your shoulders and from your soul. It's not just that. That's just the beginning. Heaven, not hell. So when you physically die, instead of being eternally and not just spiritually separated from God, but eternally separated from God, no, your death is actually going to take you into its immediate presence. By the way, heaven is not so much a place as it is his presence. It's him. And then this, a life of transformation. Because there's people who say, oh, no, if you preach a gospel of free grace, that's going to be, um, that, that's not going to provide any incentive for anybody to live godly. I, I, talked, I, I sold something at my house uh, a couple weekends ago. A guy came over. I thought he was a Christian, but more we talked. He, he believed in, in grace plus law, which is no grace. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ died in vain. I do not nullify the grace of God, Paul said. And so, um, well, Paul actually, we don't have time to unpack this, but the whole point actually of Romans 6 is, is, is to respond to that. There were people saying, well, listen, if we're saved by grace, I can live any ripping way I want. And Paul says, May it never be said. How shall we who died to sin live any longer therein? I was buried with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. I'm raised with Christ. In other words, that thinking doesn't understand the seismic shift that happens to the soul of a person when they truly recognize their lost condition, repent of their sin, and take or receive Jesus. You literally were made And now you're going to live. And the proof isn't going to be perfection. That don't come until glorification. But the proof will be made and seen in progress. You'll love God more. You'll grow more holy. You'll just grow in him. But here is where I want to end, and I don't want us to miss this. I think it's crucial. I could not, I could not, I could not. Nearly emphasize this enough. God is not some stingy, anti-joy, austere God who says, oh, you, you, you can get your sins forgiven and you have heaven as your home and you can get some change in this life, but, but keep away for crying out loud. 
That's not God. God is not austere. He's not anti-joy. He's not stingy. God is the God, here's the big idea of the series, who gives and gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. From the point of your salvation, God wants to reveal more and 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 more of himself to you from the point of your salvation so that you know him more. And let me tell you this, in heaven, God is going to give you unending revelations of himself. Of course, he's infinite. He's omni-everything. He is going to reveal more and more and more. There's never going to be a time in heaven when God will stop giving yet more of himself. Somebody put it this way. There will never be so much as a millisecond in heaven where we are not exposed to yet another truth about God, where we're not exposed to another dimension of his majesty, an additional feature to his splendor and power and glory and strength. Now listen to me, please. This, the whole point of this knowing God more and more and more and more is to find more and more and more joy in him. That's, that's, that's the ultimate point of it all. John 17 makes it clear the essence of eternal life is not a past transac- transaction of your sins forgiven. That's great. Not a future destination of heaven, which is ultimately his presence, which kind of gets to it then, yes. It's not even a life of change. All that is great. But the ultimate purpose of eternal life, Jesus said in John 17, this is eternal life, that you might know him, the only true God. You might know him. You might know him. In other words, I'm just trying to say unspeakable joy is the trajectory and the purpose of salvation. And we know this from the Christmas story. Did not the angel say, behold, I bring you good news. I was going to go with good tidings. Good news of great joy that will be for all people. It's right there, right? Does not the psalmist anticipate this when he said, Psalm 16, verse 11, in your presence is the fullness of joy. In your presence is the fullness of joy. This in Psalm 40, somewhere in there, verse 3, then he said, I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy, my, not just my joy, my exceeding joy. And the psalmist even taught us that when we're not feeling joy, we can find joy in the knowledge that one day there will be future joy. Because he says, weeping endures for the night, Psalm 30, verse 3, but joy comes in the morning. And sometimes when you're not feeling joy, you can begin to find some shades of joy in the fact that one day you will be overwhelmed with joy. Consider, just consider, and I'm closing this up the beautiful joy-drenched descriptions of heaven in the book of Revelation. 
four kind of big images or metaphors. One, is, one of them is this, is joy in ultimate victory. Ultimate victory, right? We sang, we've delivered, been delivered from bondage. But I said to myself, sometimes I don't feel that way, right? Sometimes I, I, I stray back to things, right? Like I fight. Do you too? You struggle, struggle, right? We're already not yet. But I sang that out of anticipation of what's going to come. That one day, one day, I'm going to experience ultimate victory. And all through the book of Revelation, all through the book of Revelation, there's these, these fight songs, these triumphant songs. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation and tribe and language and people, clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands, and they're crying with a loud, victorious voice. Salvation belongs to our God and to him who sits on the throne to the Lamb. There's, that's, that's, just, that's just drenched with joy, isn't it? Or how about this? The wedding supper of the Lamb. You remember that? You talk about a feast. And you have these words, 19 and 7. Let us rejoice and exult for the wedding supper of the Lamb has come. These are just images of rich joy. Or how about this truth? This truth that one day we are going to be completely healed of every affliction of sin within us, but also against us. And there's both, okay? There is both. Because he says, neither shall there be any, and I mentioned this before, no more crying, nor pain, nor death. God will wipe away every tear with his eternal divine Kleenex, for the former things have passed away. And then the image on top of images is given in the last chapter, I think it is, of Revelation. It'll be the joy of being fully and finally home. This, listen to these words from chapter 22, verses 4 through 5. This is talking about us, us. They will see his face. Nobody has seen the face of God yet. Here, right? They will see his face. They're going to be amazement. And his name will be on their foreheads. His name will be on our foreheads. Now, this is, this is, there's, there's, there's beautiful poetic imagery and all that. But you know what this is saying? It's, listen to the next expression. And night will be no more. They will, not, they will need no light of lamp or sun. Why? For the Lord their God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Just talking about this, we're going to be immediately in his presence. And increasing in joy forever as we increase in the revelations of who he is in the light of his raw, full, unbridled presence. And I just think with so much negativity around us, so much brokenness, we're so infected and infused by so much bad and negative stuff that God wants to infect us with some of that future joy now. Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. That, my friend, is not going to happen by osmosis. It's not. It's not. 
It's not going to happen about being lackadaisical about gathering with the saints of God. Not. It's not going to happen being lackadaisical about reading your Bible, about praying, about bringing your stuff to the Lord, about sharing Jesus. It, it doesn't happen accidentally. It doesn't happen by osmosis. No. I, 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 want, I, want, I wish I had a whiteboard right here. It says, now, may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace. So who does the filling? Who does the filling? But what's our part? May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. What do we believe? Well, you just, just go through the book of Romans, what you to believe, that the just shall live by faith, right? Or this, for whosoever shall believe in their heart, Jesus, whoever shall confess with the mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in the heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. It, it, basically, going back to believing the gospel, right? So we now have an opportunity to sing, maybe for you, by faith, what one day you will experience by sight. Does that make sense? I don't always, I don't always, like, I don't think that's true of me right now, right? But I, I, I sing that by faith. I sing it by faith. God is infinite. I can't understand everything. But I'm a puny little ant, right? I'm going to, listen, I have to believe. May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Now, if you've never received that gift, if you've never received the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, we would love to talk to you about that. I'll be in the back. You can talk to me. You can talk to another pastor. You can talk to a friend, whoever. But, like, again, I talked about this last week. There's a difference between knowing and believing in Jesus, right? Right? But if you have truly, but you've drifted from understanding that I got to go to the altar of God, my, my exceeding joy, that it, only in his presence is a fullness of joy. If you've drifted from that, wouldn't Christmas time be a great time to return to your first love? And commit, commit, say, God, I want to find my ultimate joy in you. And I haven't been. For whatever reason, but I'm going to go to God, the God of my exceeding joy. It won't happen by osmosis. It won't happen by accident. But it will happen as you take him for his word. Oh, Father, this is the kind of message where I feel like I did not really communicate what I want to communicate, but I feel it. Um, I pray, Father, for my brothers and sisters in Christ that, um, yeah, just in your mercy, there'd even be fresh apprehensions of the joy of God as we sing to the God of joy. Um, I pray for anyone who, who has not been looking for the ultimate joy in you, that you would use this message to, to drive, drive that deep into the marrow of their soul. I pray for anyone here who, who never really has truly in saving faith turned to Jesus Christ. That 
today, this season, this time would be that. Pray for freedom as we sing, Lord. Freedom as we sing. Freedom to worship however the Spirit leads us to in song or in silence with uplifted hands or on our knees, but that we would truly worship you and experience fresh joy in you, God, because Christmas reminds us you are the God of joy. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.